Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is 112BK. Coming up, thoughts on Thursday's Kavanaugh-Blasey Ford hearing from Salon Politics writer Amanda Marcotte. It's very clear that as far as Republicans are concerned, they don't really care about this hearing. They just want to get through it so that they have something to point to to say they bothered to take this accusation seriously, but they clearly are not. Plus, a conversation with a Brooklyn filmmaker about his documentary 306 Hollywood and the effort to make magic out of the mundane. When we begin to think about the people who form our lives and then form the histories and the societies that we live in, we need to look beyond the most powerful people. And then, Brick producer Steve DeSeb was given special access to a recording session of NYCHA testimonials presented to a federal judge on Wednesday. This is a first-person glimpse into the shocking reality of NYCHA at its worst. I was literally in my bedroom using a jaw, sorry, to urinate. And it made me feel like an animal. Hi, thanks for joining us. We're joined now on the phone by Amanda Marcotte, Salon's senior politics writer and author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Fucking Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. She's been following closely the development surrounding the sexual assault allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh and one of his accusers, Christine Blasey Ford, will of course be in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on Thursday, as that body hears their versions of the events in dispute while still seeking to accelerate the process of Kavanaugh's confirmation. We're hoping to understand what to make of this hearing and what it might achieve, uh, other than ratings for cable and network news. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the big news today is that there is a third allegation against Kavanaugh by Julie Swetnick, who is being uh, represented by Michael Avenatti, who, of course, is Stormy Daniels' lawyer as well. Tell us what to make of this and what the reaction has been. I mean, I think that out of nowhere, her accusation would have seemed a little bit hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around, but it fits in with a pattern of other information we've gotten about the sort of prep school environment of the D.C. area. A number of people who don't know Kavanaugh but went to school in those kinds of schools and stepped forward and reported similar things. So, you know, she's a government employee. She has security clearances she could lose over this. I feel overall that we should be taking this allegation very seriously. So she's viewed as credible, and while she is not accusing Brett Kavanaugh directly of sexual assault, she's saying that he was present at parties where she was sexually assaulted, and she saw him engage in uh, troubling behavior, to say the least. The one thing I really want to flag about all this is that what we're hearing from women that are stepping forward is very congruent with what research has said about gang rape and gang assault for decades now. And I said this on Twitter, but FBI investigator Hazelwood wrote a book about sort of the taxonomy of rape. And his words on gang rape very much comport with what we've heard from these women here, that it's much more about young men showing off for each other, kind of creating a pecking order, you know, going after girls that they view as low status or that they've deemed as sluts. Um, that it's really bit much more about establishing their masculine bona fides in each other's eyes than anything else. I, I find it difficult to believe myself that a bunch of women who just happen to go to school in the area 
would be so well versed in the criminology around this that they would come up with a story that just so perfectly matched what the research says about these sorts of things. Right. And and the other news that I want to draw our viewers' attention to um, is that there has been a prosecutor brought in by the Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, uh, Rachel Mitchell, who Mitch McConnell referred to as a female assistant. She is, in fact, a prosecutor who has been at her job for decades. Can you tell us a little bit more about Rachel Mitchell and why Republicans have chosen to engage her for the questioning? I don't know much about her career in general, but what I do know is that this is highly unusual. I've never even heard of this happening before. lawyer being brought in to question a witness instead of the senators themselves. It's very clear that as far as Republicans are concerned, they don't really care about this hearing. They just want to get through it to you so that they have something to point to to say they bothered to take this accusation seriously, but they clearly are not. They can't even question her themselves and instead are more worried about making sure that there's no campaign ads against them showing them being insensitive to a woman with a credible sexual assault allegation. You know, they don't care about getting to the truth of this matter. They just care about getting this done and minimizing their political exposure. Right. So we think that this is an issue of optics rather than trying to get at the truth of the matter. Yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that they were like, get us a woman. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. In other news, we saw that Kavanaugh has released his calendar for the summer of 82, which doesn't mention rape or sexual assault on it. Um, exculpatory, in your opinion? <laughs> no. Um, what it, what's interesting is that he thought that that would be exculpatory because, well, it does show that he did a lot of schoolwork and he did a lot of uh, volunteer work. It also shows he went to a lot of parties. So it comports exactly with what uh, Dr. Blasey Ford said their lifestyle was like then. Um, I don't really understand what he's trying to prove here. Uh, Slate had a piece from a woman who wasn't talking about Brett Kavanaugh specifically, but was talking about the atmosphere of the prep schools in the area. She graduated class of 88 from one of them. And she, she specifically mentioned seeing a gang rape in progress during Beach Week, which is something that Kavanaugh himself has on his calendar. So again, that doesn't mean he did it. It doesn't mean it happened at Beach Week. But what we're seeing is that he went to exactly the sort of events that are described as being these kinds of events. Amanda, you've mentioned in some of your writing that the fact that people like Trump and Kavanaugh lie so easily and badly is a testament to the power of wealth and privilege. These are men who have never faced consequences for behaviors that they flaunt. What do you think it's going to take to bring men like this to justice? I mean, I think that this is like, once again, a real show of what power means. And these men are able to do what they want because they have the power to do it and no one has a no one currently has the power to stop them and and frankly the only way to change that equation is for people to get out and vote other people into power you know and i i just don't see another pathway to holding these people accountable it's it's clear they're closing ranks and it's clear that they have the power to do so And any predictions for what we can see on Thursday? Are you at all hopeful uh, that this will derail Kavanaugh's nomination? 
I'm not feeling great about it. It's super clear that the Republicans just want to be able to say they gave this woman a hearing, but they've already indicated that they don't believe her or they don't believe it was serious. And in a sense, both things are the same thing. They just don't think that this matters. And this is just sort of rubber stamping it through. They're not bringing other witnesses. They're not even questioning her or Kavanaugh themselves. That said, the Democrats uh, will be there. They will be questioning Kavanaugh. They will be questioning Ford. Maybe despite the way that Republicans have obviously loaded this as much as they can to discredit this woman as much as they can, the truth will come out and we will see something, you know, change. That's my hope. But at this point, um, it's clear that the deck is stacked very, very strongly against not just Ford, but the other women who've stepped forward with accusations. Amanda Marcotte, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up, our conversation with one of the directors of 306 Hollywood. When we think of magical realism in storytelling, we most often think of novelists like Gabriel Garcia Marquez in his 100 Years of Solitude, Isabel Allende or Salman Rushdie, who have recreated real worlds mixed with imagination and the improbable. This has been an effective way of telling personal family stories, not to mention politically subversive ones, where myths, fables, and artifacts become part of a fanciful and sometimes tragic folklore, enabling us to appreciate pieces of the almost unfathomable aspects of human existence. But it's rare to see such tools at play in the documentary film form. But that didn't stop our next guest from using it to whimsical and illuminating effect in his documentary, 306 Hollywood, which you could say is about his grandmother, but also so much more. Here's a little glimpse. We're turning grandma's house into an archeological dig. <laughs> you know, when you're on an archeological dig, you start to imagine how these people would have lived. To talk about this 2018 Sundance Film Festival selection, we're joined by Jonathan Bogarin, who co-directed the film with his sister, Ilan Bogarin. Welcome to 112BK. Thanks so much for having me. So this first question is maybe a little trite because the whole film seeks to explore the question, but who was your grandmother? So my grandmother was the daughter of Jewish immigrants who came to Newark in the early part of the 20th century. They were fleeing persecution in Russia and Poland. Uh, she grew up in Newark in the Jewish ghetto, and as a young woman, she was a clothing designer and then moved to the house at 306 Hollywood Avenue in Hillside, New Jersey, which at the time seemed to be a long ways outside of Newark, but it was in fact like a mile away. So she spent her entire life in this house. She was actually a very ordinary person who was also a very remarkable person. And I think that's the thing about this film that we wanted to get at was the ways in which the ordinary people in our lives are in fact remarkable, they're extraordinary. And we wanted to find the language to talk about that. So our grandmother was a normal person. We interviewed her for 10 years towards the end of her life between the ages of 83 and 93 when she passed away. And her death was sort of like the inciting incident for us to begin exploring her life through these tapes that we had made of her and the objects that remain in her house. And it seems like she played a huge role in your and your sister's life. Uh, you visited her every Sunday growing up. And so in addition to these interviews that you did with her for 10 years, the film is this pastiche of different types of footage. You've got the archival, you have sort of contemporary doc footage that was shot for the film, and you also have these beautiful devised scenes. Can you talk about the decision to tell the story in this sort of collage fashion? All right. So when our grandmother died, we went back to her house, and when we re-entered, it felt like all of the objects that were there had life in them. 
Um, most of them were junk. It could have been piles of paper clips. It could have been just old textbooks from the 1950s. But somehow it felt like there was life there. And on one hand, that life was the life of our grandmother and the life of our family who had also lived there. And on another hand, it was almost like a cross-section of the 20th century. We actually were able to excavate 100 years of history inside the house, whether it be audio cassettes, video cassettes, books, clothes, junk, like cups, band-aid boxes full of change. There's all these, all these things that we found. And we needed to figure out how do you bring back those times? How do you bring back those lives that are no longer visible? So that, that, that's actually one of the reasons that we began creating this language that uses um, elements of fiction film, elements of dance and choreography, uses many different artists' work from sculptors to bookbinders and calligraphers. They're all sort of present in that, in that work because we wanted to figure out how to make the invisible or the past visible in the present. And you also bring in interviews with some unlikely suspects, right? There's an archeologist, there's a physicist, and it seems like you're trying to say something about the human condition through the window of these disparate fields that seemingly have nothing to do with your grandmother directly. Why did you sort of choose that element? And, and were there any other interviews that ended up on the cutting room floor? All right. Well, <clears throat> we, we, thought of the how, we thought of the project as an archeological excavation, and we began excavating layer by layer. As we went through, certain questions came up. Some of them obviously were personal about who was our grandmother and what were her stories. And there were other questions about like, how do we tell history? Who's included in history and why? So for instance, in that case, we went to the Rockefeller Archive and we interviewed Bob Clark, who's the director of the Rockefeller Archive. And he talked to us about the reasons we keep certain stories versus other, the power dynamics that are in play, and really gave us part of a playbook of how to maintain regular people's stories and to create an archive. In other cases, when you lose someone you love, they're always with you, but they're gone. You feel their presence, but you feel their absence. It's sort of one of the weird mysteries of life. So we spoke with Alan Lightman, who is a physicist and novelist, who speaks a lot about these same kind of paradoxes and how the, the physical world and the scientific world kind of describes the things that we try to deal with on a personal level within our own lives. That was such a compelling scene, that interview with the archivist from the Rockefeller Brothers, because he positioned them as the winners of history, these these titans of industry who now have huge staffs of people dedicated to preserving their memory. And how do we preserve the memory of more ordinary people like your grandmother? So I think a lot of people question why we would make a film about our grandmother, this person, right? And so it's very personal. Why is she remarkable? And I think that when we begin to think about the people who form our lives and then form the histories and the societies that we live in, we need to look beyond the most powerful people. So every single one of us has a grandmother. In fact, there's no one who does not have a grandmother. Everyone has people they loved who, who formed their lives. And everybody grew up in a home, in a domestic space. Um, in my grandmother's world, and I think largely still in the world that we live in now, there are certain spaces that are very distinctly gendered as male or female. And she was someone who embraced this role, but also expanded this role tremendously. She was a leader. She was a philosopher in her way. Um, she was someone who, who supported people and, and really helped people throughout their whole lives. And I think it was just really important to us that we gave her a platform to keep her history. And I think in doing that, to show to other people, your grandmother, your grandfather, your cousin, your sister, your brother, those are people that are worth remembering and people whose stories are worth archiving and keeping as part of our, our larger history that we share. This is such an intensely personal documentary as well, and that comes through time and again. Like, there's one scene where your mother is sort of going through some of the remnants of, of the house, and, and she tells you, that's enough, you know, stop filming. And I'm wondering, was there anything that was off limits? Did you have a conversation with your mother, your sister, other members of the family ahead of time to talk about things that you weren't going to touch? Well, it was kind of interesting because 
everyone in the family was a collaborator of sorts. Uh, there's a scene in the film where a grandmother actually strips down and she's nearly naked and she's trying on clothes that she had made for herself 60 years prior. And obviously they don't fit, right? Um, but she knew what was happening when we were filming her. You can see her as, we're, as, we're, as the scene unfolds, because actually it's one uncut scene that runs for about seven minutes and it's hilarious and you can see her kind of grappling with things, but you can see her also recognizing her own agency. You can see her recognizing her sense of beauty, her sense of aging, how she's dealing with these things and how she's dealing with the past. And I feel like the fact that our family was involved in this from, actually we began filming in 2001, the fact that our mother and our grandmother were so involved in the process, it was almost like anything was, was fair game. And, and they were able to express a lot of the ideas and a lot of the emotions through, um, through being collaborators. That is such a remarkable scene. And you can tell that you decided very purposefully not to make any edits. And earlier in the film, um, your sister asks your grandmother, are you vain, Grandma? And she says, yeah, I am. And so juxtaposing that with this scene where she literally lets herself be exposed for the camera, um, I thought was really moving, and especially seeing the relationship between your mom and your grandmother and your mom, who was so kind and gentle with her. You really felt the, the force of these, of these two women. Right. And I think also this question of generations. You know, we're looking at three different generations of women, uh, each of whom is, is dealing with beauty, representation, their own identity in different ways, and you can see that interaction playing out within the scene. What do you think your grandma would think of the film? I think on one hand, she would really appreciate it because I think that she had always supported us as artists. She herself was a designer and an artist. She studied at Pratt here in Brooklyn, actually, in the 1930s. Um, so I think she really would have appreciated that level. On another hand, you know, she was someone who's like, she, was, she could be very public, but also someone who's like, you know, I don't know what, what all this fuss is about. So I think, I think she'd probably make a joke of it. So I love this film. Um, will you tell our audience where they can go see it? Of course. Um, the film premieres this Friday. This is September 28th at the Quad Cinema in Manhattan. It's 34 West 13th Street. And we'll be playing there for at least a week and might continue after that. Um, every single day and every single night, we're going to have special event screenings. Uh, one of our goals for the film is to talk about the different themes in the film uh, every day with the audiences. So there's going to be Q&As with myself and my sister, as well as other people who worked in the film, uh, authors, uh, archivists, fashion designers, artists, um, many different people who deal with uh, the themes about grief, science, et cetera. So come on out for the different, uh, the different Q&As. You can find that information on the Quad website. You can also find it on 306hollywood.com and also on Facebook at 306hollywood. Uh, after that, it's going to roll out into about 15 additional cities, and we'll continue the, the tour from there. Great. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. And once again, the film is called 306 Hollywood. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. And now, some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. According to a report just released by City Comptroller Scott Stringer, New York City has lost one million affordable apartments since 2005. What's considered affordable? Apartments renting for $900 or less. Remember those? Yeah, me neither. This, of course, puts the squeeze on working-class renters trying to stay close to their places of employment. Brooklyn was the worst borough, having gone from more than half a million units to about 145,000 in 2017. Now, some news in local news. A new provider of local news will be coming online soon. It's called The City, and it's a collaboration with New York Magazine, a response to dwindling local news coverage with the aim of, quote, aggressively holding the powers in New York accountable, said the editor-in-chief. So far, they've raised $8.5 million in funding. No word yet on first date of publication, but we look forward to it and wish them luck. Bedbugs on the bus! No, not the next Samuel L. Jackson thriller, although I would watch that. 
It's apparently a reality on some buses from a North Manhattan depot. Channel 7 reported that drivers said bed bugs were believed to be crawling in the seats of at least six buses in the past three weeks. I know something else that's crawling right now, and it's my skin. But an MTA spokesperson downplayed the report, saying there's no confirmed samples and that the buses have been taken out of service and quarantined as a precautionary measure. See you tonight in my nightmares. And the Miss Subway's pageant is back for 2018, a celebration of the weird side of underground life with a focus on the need for improvements. It will take place Thursday, September 27th at Littlefield in Gowanus and is open to people of all gender identities, shapes, and sizes. Last year's champion was Lisa Levy, a 61-year-old armchair psychotherapist and first post-menopausal Miss Subways. Her winning approach was a monologue on how the Subways have been a character in her life. Best of luck to all of this year's contestants. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at BKLYNER.com. We're ending our show today with this. Beginning Wednesday, a federal judge will be considering a NYCHA settlement and oversight plan. Residents were invited to give testimony by letter, in person, or on video. Brick producer Steve DeSev got special access to film some of the video testimonials as they were being recorded, and we want to share some of that now with you. First, a couple things we want to add for your consideration. To dispel a common misconception, NYCHA tenants pay rent just like any other tenant, and they also pay taxes to the city. But because of their residency in NYCHA properties, they're denied many city services from other agencies that are available to those living in private housing. This is unofficial policy and practice of these service providers, like a buildings inspector, always to redirect residents back to NYCHA to address their issues, concerns, or crises. So, for example, if you're a non-NYCHA tenant and you call a buildings inspector because of mold, they'll hold your landlord accountable. But if you live in NYCHA, we're told, and you call the buildings inspector because of mold, they'll send you back to your landlord. I'm just going to put this microphone on you so we can record this for the hearing. Okay. All right. You will have two minutes to deliver your testimony. Your Honor, this hearing today is not just about black mold, but it's about broken plumbing, leaking roofs, broken elevators, intimidation, harassment for speaking up, lead, millions of dollars in tenant participation monies missing, hundreds of thousands of repair tickets ignored and erased. Vermin, roaches, rats, mice. There's no heat and hot water. Why is the elevator broken and why the door downstairs is never closed? I had a leak in my bathroom for over 15 years. The city of New York has offered to pay $2 billion to avoid a trial for its many violations regarding New York City Housing Authority. Is $2 billion enough? My name is Cherry Shivers. I live in White Coast Garden. I'd like to agree the honorable judge. My problem is and my crisis is my apartment. I have lived there for 50 some odd years and I'm 79 years old and I just can't take it anymore. They don't fix a damn thing. They promise you and promise you they never show up. The doors is open all night, all day, and we have a problem with people coming in robbing our senior citizens. And I just can't take it because that's my home, and I'm not gonna move nowhere. 
because I need to stay in White Cove Garden. I demand that NYCHA's be held accountable for all issues all across the board. Leaks in the bathroom, broken elevators, no heat and hot water. I had an issue yesterday that we didn't have no water at all with no notice put up at all. My bathroom is actually connected to my neighbor's kitchen. So when they tore this wall down uh, back in September of 2017, they just put up a piece of plastic. Well, that left me using the bathroom where I felt extremely uncomfortable because my neighbor could see me a few times using the bathroom. When they eventually came to do the repairs about 10 months later, they had to actually remove the toilet bowl and they sat it inside the bathtub. And for the next five, six days, every day that they came, I had no place to use the bathroom. So I was literally in my bedroom using a jaw, sorry, to urinate. And it made me feel like an animal. Sorry. There's a problem with elevator issues. People getting stuck in elevators. They break down all the time. Most of the time, they're not running as properly as they should. And in my building, they have problems with the mailboxes. They, um, the locks are not good as they should be, and they breaking down. And people have to go to two miles from their house to go pick up their mail for the people's mailboxes that are broken. In each development, the percentage of children is around 32%, and the percentage of seniors is about 40 to 50%. Uh, that means that uh, New York City Housing Authority is failing children and seniors. An ode to NYCHA. The tenants, slumlord is hot on the fire. The media has reported you an, an irresponsible, habitual slumlord liar. We refuse to have you pacify and romance us like Cupid. We the people are rising and we ain't stupid. You made it impossible to enjoy our dwellings and our lives. We, we still, we're rising in size. What are you people, monsters from Mars? You are causing our living conditions to be so damn hard. There's privy in your power and it puts you above the law, cheating all of us and robbing the poor. Listen up, tenants, everyone. Understand all that you hear. Never be seduced into fear. Know that it's criminality, intrusion, causing confusion, and an occasion there's hostile invasion in our environment. This battle of the tenants' rights is why we fight until you give back a new nature intact, a, re a reconstruction all over the cities that shall save the lives of many. This is a numbers game. You, the culprit, must take the blame. We are our judge. We are your judge jury. Behold our fury. We are energetic and motivated with eyes on the prize. Together, all over the city and state, we shall rise. We shall rise. I just want to end with, I hope that these hearings and, and the judges are listening to us, and this is just not a waste of time, like everything has, else has been in NYCHA. Thank you. And that's the show. I'll be back again tomorrow to talk about backlash governance and the phenomenon of voting unwittingly against your own self-interest. Hope you can join me. One One Two BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. 
It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>